So, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're starting actually now a verse-by-verse study. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage followers of Jesus who are not having an easy go of it. Have you ever had a hard time following Jesus? Am I the only one crashing and burning for Jesus? Well, here's a group of people who are a minority, who are really misunderstood, because nobody's heard of this Jesus. And they're really outcasts from their own culture. And the only way to help these people or anybody is with the truth. Did you know that it doesn't help to take somebody's hand and pet it gently and go, there, there, dear. Just want to say, I'm going to send you to the moon right now. Nothing is going to help but the truth. Something true would help. And you can't say, well, look at Frodo and Sam. They had a hard job to do, dear, but they accomplished it. And you can say, Frodo and Sam are imaginary. Maybe you talk to them, but I don't. Well, Peter's encouragement is real and true. And he starts this letter off by talking about what God has done. And that's what we're all being directed to look at today. Our Christianity, our following Jesus, is not something we do, but it's something that he has done for us. We follow Jesus because of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit doing things for us. So here's what Peter says in the first chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. <gasps> That's all one sentence. So, first of all, we look at the author and his readers. And if you look at them carefully, you have to marvel at what God has already done. Because he did it. Like Peter. 
You notice he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And actually, in the original language, there's no definite article. So he calls himself an apostle. Now, his given name was Simon or Simeon. And that name originally comes from one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Simon was an ordinary guy. Does everybody get that? He was a tradesman. He was a fisherman. He was a guy. He was married. He even had a mother-in-law. Okay, so that's normal. You would not pick him out of a crowd or say, whoa, what about the guy with the halo above his head? What's his deal? So here's a normal guy, and Jesus called him to follow him. And the very first time when he met him, he says, you know, your name is Simon, son of John, but you know, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Rock. And that was his nickname for him. And if you notice, Peter is always first in any list of the apostles. Always. And he's actually the one we know the most about. He's sort of like the star of the show. But notice, he doesn't say Peter, the apostle. He could. He's the guy left in charge by Jesus. But he's humble. He doesn't put himself forward like he's somebody. Like, I'm here where is the best bedroom? Who cooks the best? That's for me. He doesn't ever act like that. See, he's what Jesus made him to be. And that is a servant leader who looks out for others, and he's here wanting to strengthen those who are following Jesus. And see, that's the direct result of Jesus working in his life. But then he says to the pilgrims, and in your margins it might say sojourners, temporary residents, we would call them foreigners. Foreigners. You know, they're different. They don't belong here. You can tell it immediately. They open their mouth. You go, wow, where are you from? But these guys are different. That is, these people live in these different Roman provinces in what is now modern-day Turkey. Okay? And he says they're pilgrims. They're dispersed. And that is a, almost a technical word. And it, it was used to describe all the Jews who were scattered because of the destruction of Jerusalem abroad in the world. And it turned out that there are pockets of Jews almost everywhere. But he's not talking about Jews, for the most part. Because, for the most part, Jews were not following Jesus. Some of them were a remnant. So he's talking mostly to Gentiles. They are the scattered. They are 
the resident aliens, and they were born there. They speak the language. They know the culture inside out. And guess what? They're foreigners. And they're regarded like foreigners. They're treated like foreigners. You know, they get all the crummy jobs. And they're, they're the ones you make the jokes about. And they're the ones that you can take advantage of because they don't fight back because they're a minority. See? Now the question is, how did natives get turned into foreigners in their own country? And the reason is they received Jesus. And Jesus so changed their lives that their families looked at them and said, what are you, who are you? What are you doing? You've never done this in your whole life, and now you're different. It's like you're not even a member of this family anymore. You look like him, but you're not acting like him. And they would get thrown out of their families. Some of them would have a funeral for them while they're still alive. And they huddle together, and people go, what are they doing? Are the weirdos. Because they're not acting like us. They're different, see? So the only thing that explains Peter and these scattered resident aliens is that God has done something. Now, Peter describes these guys in verse 2. And this is what every believer looks like, and every description is really based on what God has done. So look at this. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And by the way, notice this is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God. You always have to do this. This is something that came up uh, Friday night in Colossians. And I'm not remembering exactly how it came up. But the point is, is that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, but it's improper to speak of three gods. And even here, we're seeing the revelation of who God is. And all of God is involved in our salvation. So look at this. God the Father. Our salvation starts with him, and it says, elect. That means chosen. That means you have a box of chocolates, and you choose. And you go, well, I don't like milk, chocolate. So out with that. Oop, but I like dark. And oop, this one's got an almond in it. See? You choose. You even discriminate. I want this person. And I want that person. Now God did this. He chose. He thought it over carefully. And he made a decision. And this verse 2 even shows us when he made that decision. That is, before he made anything. That's what foreknowledge always refers to. In other words, God knew you before the universe existed. 
And God says, I want her. I want him. I want them. I want her. He made some choices. Do you know that our salvation did not start with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden? And God says, oh man, this is a mess. What am I going to do? Come on, guys, we got to think. Plan B. Anybody got a plan B? Michael? Gabriel? See, God had the whole thing laid out already before he even made one atom. And you know, that means before any of us ever chose Jesus, he chose us first. Try to get your head around that. I'm making a bold step. You find out, oh, wait a minute. God always, he already chose me. He's first. Now, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So God comes first, and he says, I choose you. Now, Peter and these scattered resident aliens, and you and me, are also a result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sets us apart from the world to be holy to God. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we learn later on in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit does this work. John, Jesus said, and he, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit convinces us that we, me, I am a sinner. And that I need a Savior. Now that's pretty fabulous already, don't you think? Did you ever kind of turn that corner in your mind when you realized, whoa, I'm wrong? And up until now, it was kind of like, I don't want to be a Christian. Get away from me. I don't want to catch this. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to hang out with dumb people because they're all dumb. And I'm not dumb, so I'm not going to hang with them. I'm only speaking from my own personal experience. All the Christians I knew were dumb. And boy, is it catching? 
And here I am. I'm one of them now. I'm a ringleader. <laughs> what? See, the Holy Spirit managed to convince me. And I turned a corner and I thought, I'm wrong. I am all wrong. I am so wrong. And God is right. And I'm wrong. And this is really uncomfortable. He humbles us so that we come to this next description for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is the Son of God who left heaven, all of his rights as God, all of his privileges, all the perks, and he humbles himself and becomes a slave, and he presents himself before God as a sacrifice for our sins. And the sprinkling of the blood, that's a reference to the Old Testament sacrifices. And the sprinkling of the blood with your finger before the altar is the testimony to God that a life has been given. Because he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So it's not the physical blood in and of itself, but it's the life that has been given to death, which means irretrievable. And Jesus made atonement. He brought forgiveness, redemption, purification. Now, Peter also says obedience. That means the gospel is not a sales pitch like 20% extra, new. You know, we want to sell you a cartload. Would you please sign here today? I'll go to my manager and okay this. Make me an offer. We're not selling soap here. This is a command that says, repent and believe. It means turn to God and turn away from your sins and depend on what Jesus has done for you when he died in your place. Now, you're supposed to obey his command. He expects you to obey his command. And if you obey his command, then you receive forgiveness and eternal life. But if you disobey his command and turn away from him, then there is no forgiveness. The wrath of God abides on you still. You are already condemned before God, just as we read in John chapter 3. He who does not believe is already condemned. So if you obey Jesus, you will be saved. And if you disobey him, you are already condemned. So look at this. 
a normal fisherman, he became an apostle. And all these normal people in their different provinces and cultures became followers of Jesus. The only explanation for this is that this is what God has done, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. All of this work of God comes out of his love, his mercy, and the work of God produces peace. And this grace and this peace is supposed to grow. It's supposed to get better. You know, it's, it's kind of a reminder of what Isaiah says about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, of the government of Jesus and the increase of peace. There will be no end. Can you imagine? How can peace increase? How can it get any better? And yet it's going to. So, that's what Peter is saying. The more you know God, the greater your experience of grace and peace will be. So, we've barely crawled out of Peter's salutation. And already we're topped off. It's a little much, isn't it? I feel like I'm in the pulpit with a gospel hammer going pow, pow. And you say, we're just about done. But guess what? Peter goes over the same ground again for a second time. Can you imagine? And there's more to this. Look what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there we see that the source of all this salvation is God's great mercy. Now, the Greek word used here was used by the translators of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. They use this word mercy here to translate the Hebrew word chesed. And that is the most important characteristic about God. God is this strong, faithful, covenant love. And it has everything to do with relationship. And that goes back to this mystery of God, is that he is not a single individual, but there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have a relationship, who love each other for all eternity. Perfect relationship, perfect communication, perfect love. And the point is, our sins against God blew up our perfect relationship with God. Totally messed things up. And all of our sin is, first of all, against God. You know, even if, even if we treat somebody else badly, that sin is, first of all, against God. Everything wrong we do is against God. Now, let me ask you a question. And I asked this of the guys on 
Friday night. We're thinking about this. How do you feel like when somebody steals something from you? You ever had your house burgled? No. But we did. We left our key in the back door. And some guy jumped over the fence, knocked out a window like this, and he stole Joni's laptop, and he stole my backpack that had my effect pedals in it. Why that dirty? Oh, I'm not supposed to say things like that. I'm a Christian. <laughs> it's the kind of feeling you have when somebody runs his key down the outside of your car because he thinks it's funny. Rips you off, lies about you. That, that sense of feeling, how dare you? Now imagine that turned up to bazillion infinity. And that's the reaction of God to sin. All of that, you violated this. You ripped me off. You stole. You broke. That's God's righteous reaction. But notice this. God doesn't come back with, I'm going to just fix up hell and burn you forever and watch you burn. Oh, I will enjoy that. He comes back with mercy. Now, judgment belongs to God alone. And God will condemn. He will. But that's his foreign work. That's his strange work. He really delights in unchanging love, that relationship. So rather than destroying us, throwing us into hell forever, God says, you know what? I am going to restore relationship. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he does all that by begetting us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, God's mercy is not cheap. He doesn't take all the dirt and sweep it under the carpet and make this huge mound in the living room. And we just walk around it and forget about it. And God just forgave us. Isn't that easy? Just God goes and forgives. And people say, why do I have to receive Jesus? Can he just forgive us and then everything's cool? One guy exploded this one time. He, he was a missionary talking to a tribal chief. And the tribal chief says, hey, don't, in effect, I'm loosely translating. <laughs> I don't know the language. But he says, don't we just do more good stuff than bad stuff and everything's cool? And this guy said, okay. I kill your son. Now, how many good things do I do to make it up? See, nobody, nobody can do that kind of a thing, and that's what our offenses are like to God. 
It's more than, hey, you just broke a few rules and I am just so vexed at you. It's on that order. You killed my son. Now you want me to forgive you and just say it never happened? So here's what God does in his mercy is he actually offers up his own son. Now that goes right over the top. Now we're talking grace. And if you understand grace, it should always blow your mind. Because you wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't either. Give up one of your children for lying, rotten, murderous swine. Absolutely not. But God did. So this isn't cheap. This is costly. And the incredible, insane thing is Jesus was dead, D-E-A-D, dead, gone. And yet death could not hold him. And he rose from the dead. Now, the one who receives Jesus as Lord and Savior receives Jesus' resurrected life. A A person is truly born again from the Father, by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. God is involved. Peter calls this a living hope. Now, everybody knows what a hope is, right? It's not, I hope, I wish, but it'll never happen. I wish I had a lightsaber. That's never going to happen. But my mom calls up and says, I've put a, a check in the mail for you. See, now I'm having fun. I haven't got it yet, but it's a promise. And I trust that person who made the promise, she wouldn't lie to me. See, it's important to have mothers. They know how to write big checks. Because they love you. And I'm so glad my mom loves me. My mom gave more to me than some churches did as a missionary. And actually, I I said, Mom, really, you don't have to do this. I mean, I'm going to be okay. God's going to take care of me. She says, kid, if I want a triumphant entry into heaven, what business is it of yours? And I go, okay, 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 whatever. I'm sorry. See, don't fuss with mother. You've got hope because it's a promise. And that person who promised cannot lie. And therefore, you can expect good. That is hope. Now, this is a living hope. That's because it's about a person who is alive. Living hope. And Peter describes this as an inheritance. You know what an inheritance is? It's something that somebody says you can have that no one can take away from you. 
Now, the interesting thing about this inheritance is sin strips you of everything. Doesn't matter how much you scrape together in this life, you're going to lose it all. So you get everything just right, and finally, everything's fabulous. Let's leave it like this. Oh, wait a minute, I just died. So I lose my body, I lose my money, I lose all my relationships, and if I'm not right with God, I lose my soul, I have no future, I have only despair, condemnation, contempt, and shame. Death strips us of everything. And death is because of sin. So here's a living hope. And God says, you know what? You can have all this forever. It's a living hope that we can't lose. Now, all these adjectives show us that the inheritance is eternal and divine. It is incorruptible. That is pure, like God. And it is undefiled, like God. And it doesn't fade away. That means it doesn't get old, weak, the color fades. And actually, the Greek word here is the name of a flower that I think it was mythological because it never faded. And see, this is the point. The grass withers. The flower fades. All flesh is grass. That's what it says in Isaiah 40. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. I personally... I'm fading, corrupting, and I'm not fresh anymore. I'm past my pull date. The stitching is coming apart. I am almost more machine than human. I right, one here, got one here, got one down here. But what God has for us, a living hope, it's permanent, it's always new, it'll never get messed up, stinky, rotten, and he also says it's reserved in heaven for you. That means it's guarded. Nobody can steal it. God is not going to open the door one day and find a bunch of spider webs and the rats got in and chewed it and it's all moldy. Here it is, Rob. I kept it for you, but it kind of got ruined. But anyway, it's yours. Happy forever. This is it. <laughs> yeah, it smells. <clears throat> nope. This is always going to stay just out of the shrink wrap. Forever. No scratches. Nothing. Perfect forever. Now, this inheritance, this living hope, 
is to be glorified with the Lord Jesus. To have our lowly body transformed to be like his heavenly body. When he is revealed, then we will be revealed with him in glory. That's our inheritance. It's a living hope. It's ours. We cannot lose it. It is reserved in heaven. But you say, well, what if I don't make it? What if I mess up? What if I blow it? What if I disqualify myself? Nice inheritance. But what if I don't make it? Well, look at this last bit. Verse 5. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's keeping you right now. You don't feel very kept. Well, he's keeping you. For one thing, he's keeping you on a short leash. Anytime you start wandering off, he goes, and you go, And you go, oh yeah, forgot that bit. Sorry about that. God's funny the way he does that. And he can do that without you even knowing it. You know, I, I noticed the other day while I'm doing my meditating that Abimelech, king of Gerar, took Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his harem because Abraham said, she's my sister. Because he was scared of what would happen. Well, you know what? Stuff like that would happen. I mean, a king notices a 79-year-old lady come into his, says, she's mine. Takes her into his harem. And then he has a dream. And God says, you're a dead man. Because that woman you've taken is a man's wife. And Abimelech says, are you going to kill me? I didn't do anything. I didn't even touch her. In the innocence of my heart, I didn't touch her. And God says, I kept you from touching her. And if you don't restore her, you're going to die. Do you think Abimelech felt the hand of God upon him every time he started walking near Sarah? <sighs> Turn around, it's like, how did I get here? I was going this way. <sighs> it's like there's a force field here and I cannot get past it. You know what? Abimelech was just too busy. Couldn't be bothered. He had stuff to do. I'll get to her later. He thought... No, it wasn't the innocence of his heart. Abimelech was not that nice a guy. God prevented him, and he was completely oblivious to that. Do you get that? You know, God keeps you. And mostly, you're unaware of it. And then he lets you sin, and then you feel how awful that is, and you say to yourself, God, fix me or kill me. And he says, okay, I'll answer that prayer. No, I think I'll fix you. And he's faithful. In other words, he keeps you. That's his work. You're going to make it. 
Can you imagine? He chooses you in eternity. He sends Jesus to die for you. He raises him from the dead. He sends his Holy Spirit, but then, oop, he bobbles you at the last second, and gee, he's gone. Oh, well, open up another pack. Let's see if I can do better this time. You know, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Is God that clumsy? Is God that incapable that he can't save us right to the very end? Nah, he's going to save us. Now, notice it's through faith, that little word there. You see, what that means is you're depending upon God to keep you. And it's depending upon his work. You started following Jesus by depending upon what he did. You keep going with Jesus by depending on him to work in your life. It's the very same thing. It's all based on God's work. And this is the main point of what Peter's getting across. This salvation, it's all what God has done. He thought this up before he made the universe. It's his idea not our idea. He sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. And God has done a perfect job of our salvation, and he's happy with it. Just like when he got done with creation and looked at the whole thing, and he's been saying it's been good the whole week, and he looks at everything and he goes, this is very good. I like this. I'm happy with this. See, he's done. He's happy. Now, what are we supposed to do? This is the thing that always comes into our minds, right? What am I supposed to do? Did you read anything in there, these first five verses about what Peter did? About what these followers of Jesus in modern-day Turkey did? What did they do? doesn't say. There's no quest, no requirement, nothing that we have to accomplish before God is going to accept us. Except that one word in verse 5, faith. And what that means is we depend on what God has already done. That's it. So can we do that? Can I say, okay, Jesus died for me? I'm good with that. <laughs> God loves me since before he made the universe. Am I okay with that? I'm okay. I can depend on that. See, so what we do is we depend on what Jesus did. Take all of our mistakes and failure and stupidity, which is most of us, and we just Lay it on Jesus and say, there it is. And then we leave it with him. We're done with that. And that's how we keep walking with Jesus. Now, if you haven't received God's great mercy, and I'm sure everybody has, but just in case, you listen to his voice and you obey him. Because he's saying, turn around and depend on what I've done. 
Now, if you've received God's great mercy, you still depend on him. You're never going to get to the point